Well, good evening, Lakeside. Great to see you this evening. I invite you, if you would, to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 2 this evening. And we are going to be actually looking at the call of Matthew. And I've entitled this message, The Marks of a Thankful Servant. So I'd like to begin by reading Mark chapter 2 and looking specifically at verses 13 through 17. We read, And he, that is Jesus, went out again by the seashore, and all the people were coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he got up and followed him. And it happened that he was reclining at the table in his house, and many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many of them, and they were following him. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and the tax collectors, they said to his disciples, Why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? And hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you for the reading of your word. We thank you, Lord, for the instruction that you give us. We thank you, Lord, for the encouragement. And Lord, the example that you set forth by the men that you called. And I pray, Lord, that as we investigate this important call of Matthew, Lord, that you would, again, help us to understand the depth of your mercy and love. And Lord, just the unlimited power and potential that comes to all those who put faith and trust in you to serve you and to bring you glory. So we just pray your blessing upon our time in the word tonight, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, at a concert featuring the famous violinist Fritz Kreisler, there was a lot of attention that was being paid to his valuable Gennarius violin. And he played this violin, and at the close of his first number, the audience broke out into a thunderous standing ovation. But their applause quickly turned to dead silence when Chrysler took the violin and he smashed it over his knee. And turning to the audience, he said this. He said, I bought this violin today at a department store for $12. And the point was clear. He wanted the people, the audience, to know that the quality of the music was not attributed to the instrument, but to the master musician who played it. You know, I think this is a great story because the same is seen in the lives of people who through the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit come to the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, just as Chrysler produced quality music from that almost worthless violin, so God produces a quality of righteousness in us who prior to salvation were worthless in our sins. Before salvation, we know that men are lost, they are depraved, they are dead in their trespasses and in their sin. There are no spiritual qualities in a man whatsoever before he comes to saving faith. And there's nothing in a man apart from Christ that would merit spiritual recognition. Nothing in us that would merit any kind of distinction. So we see that in himself, man has no ability to achieve any kind of spiritual quality on his own. In a sense, we could say before salvation, we were like that cheap violin. We were a useless instrument, really, of no spiritual value. In fact, the Bible says, We were instruments, actually, of unrighteousness, and we see that in Romans 6.13. When a man comes to Christ, however, we know that a miracle of transformation takes place, that he becomes a new creature in Christ, he is given a new nature, 
And now in Christ, he's able to walk as a child of God, and the life of a believer will then exhibit the qualities of his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And in God's hands, we know that every Christian becomes an instrument of great spiritual worth. And when we as believers truly recognize what God has done in us and through us, we can't help but be thankful for who we are in Christ. And we're thankful to the Lord, beloved, because we realize that the spiritual quality of our lives is not attributed to us or our own good works, but to the workmanship of our Master, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Paul brings that out, of course, in Ephesians 2.10, when he says that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so we know that through the miracle of salvation, we've been transformed by the Master's hand. And I can't think of anything we should be more thankful for than our salvation. Amen? I mean, it's amazing. I've never gotten over my salvation. It's amazing that God would save us, and we're thankful because Jesus called us, He chose us, He put us in service to Himself, and we are now instruments in the Redeemer's hands. What a great privilege that is. And we're thankful because we know that the quality of our lives is now due to His righteousness and not our own. So we have nothing to boast about in and of ourselves. Perhaps no one in Scripture was more thankful for his salvation than the Apostle Matthew. And this evening I just want to look at the account of Matthew's conversion here. Because I think as we look at this conversion of Matthew, we indeed see the marks of a thankful servant. And we'll see what a thankful Christian looks like. And through this text that we just read, through Jesus' call of Matthew, we can identify four reasons that we can be thankful in Christ. And I think this is important for us because as we see that thankful heart towards God and we see what that looks like, it helps us from becoming self-righteous. And it also helps us from becoming unsympathetic towards those who are yet in their sins and need salvation. So here again, we want to begin, and we're going to look at the first reason that we should be thankful. And the first reason to be thankful is because God called you. We're thankful because God called you. Look at verses 13 and 14. We read again, And he, Jesus, went out again by the seashore, and all the people were coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he got up, and he followed him. Now, Jesus had been in Capernaum. That was a city that was very close to the northern banks of the Sea of Galilee. And we know in Scripture that he was there and he had healed many people in Capernaum. After healing a leper there and a paralytic man, we read in the Scriptures that Jesus left Capernaum and Jesus was walking along the Sea of Galilee. A crowd once again found him, and as he walked along, he was teaching this crowd And as he was returning back to Capernaum, Jesus, we're told, encountered a man named Levi, who we're told was sitting in a tax office. Now, in Matthew's own account of this story, he refers to himself as Matthew and not Levi, but we are talking about the same person. And remember, beloved, it was common for men to be known by more than one name in those days. Thomas, remember, was called Didymus. Simon was called Peter could have been that the Lord renamed him Matthew, but this was his apostolic name. And that name literally means a gift from God. So we see that Levi and Matthew are one 
in the same person. Now, to appreciate the man that Jesus called, I think we need to know something about him. We're told in Scripture that Matthew was a publican. That is, he was a Jewish man who collected taxes from his own people, and he gave those taxes to the occupying Roman government. The Romans, we know, collected taxes through a system called tax farming, uh, where they would literally farm out franchises. Actually, it was like the modern-day McDonald's. They had it down pat back then. And what they would do is they would assess each district with a fixed tax amount, and then they sold the right to collect those taxes to the highest bidder. And the buyer then had to hand over the fixed rate at the end of the year, but he could keep whatever he collected above that figure. And the problem with this was these tax collectors then had power of taxation that was virtually unlimited. In effect, they could practice legal extortion. Now, these tax collectors, as you well know, were hated by the Jewish people. They were considered with the likes of traitors and robbers and thugs. They were considered in the same class as criminals and prostitutes and vermin. They were easily the most hated people in Jewish society. But it gets worse than that. There were two kinds of publicans. First, there are what is called the Gabaei, and they were people who collected general taxes on land and income. And so this was just people that collected a general tax for those things. And then there was another group of publicans called the Mohes. Now, the Mohes collected a wide range of taxes on virtually anything they could think of. And among the Mohes, we read of the great Mohes, and the great Mohes were men who hired other men to collect taxes for them, and they were referred to the small Mohes. Now, they did their own assessing and collected, and they were the people that would actually sit in the booths, and they were the ones that actually would collect the taxes from the people. So here's the deal. The Gabei were despised, the great Mohes were more despised, and the small Mohes were the most despised of all. Now, which group do you think that Matthew fit into? Let's, let's have a quiz. It would be the small Mohes, okay? So he was one who would be sitting in the small tax office booth. He would be in our version of a toll booth, and he would collect taxes directly from the people. So we read that Jesus approached this tax collector, this most despised outcast of society, and in front of all his disciples and in front of many Jewish people, he said, follow me. Go behind me as a disciple. In essence, Jesus looked at this man and said, Matthew, I want to take you, a man who's considered the scum of the earth, an outcast in Jewish society, and I want to put you in my most intimate circle of disciples. Now, at this time, Jesus had already called six of the twelve disciples. Matthew was the seventh one that was called. Now, how do you think the other disciples reacted to that? I'm sure that their reaction was less than stellar, not to mention how the multitude watching him probably reacted. No doubt, the look on their faces, even with the multitude, the look on their faces when Jesus told him to follow me must have been one of shock and disbelief. And you know, it's easy to sit here and read the scriptures and be so pious and think, oh, well, Matthew, he was a, look at, he would want to go on and write one of the books of the Bible. They didn't know that, amen? And you know what? I doubt many of us would think much differently. 
I can hear them grumbling, saying, you got to be kidding me, right? I mean, he's, did he just say, follow me? Is that what I heard him say? God called one of the most unacceptable men imaginable to be one of his disciples. And yet from the parallel account in Luke, we see in Luke 5.28 that we're told that Matthew left everything behind and he rose and he began to follow Jesus. Stunning. In Matthew's heart, we know that the power of God had him yearning for forgiveness We know that Matthew must have been extremely thankful that Jesus called him. There was no hesitation. He just up and left. But many others were not as thankful as Matthew was. And to appreciate this, let's put this in a modern day setting, shall we? So let's say that you and I are walking with Jesus as one of his disciples and you come across a murderer who has spent maybe 35, 40 years in prison a man who viciously attacked and maybe killed innocent people, and then Jesus says to that man, follow me. The man gets up and he shakes your hand and he says, guess what? We're rooming together tonight. How excited would you be about that? Okay, not only that, but I'm going to throw a celebration and I'm going to invite all my ex-convict friends who just got out of prison. Yeah, I don't want to miss that party. I can imagine how we would feel And I'll bet we would be very reluctant and I'll bet we would be taken aback if we were in a situation like that. Because it's true, isn't it? As much as sometimes we don't like to admit it, we don't like to be in the company of those who seem so horrifically different from us, do we? We don't like to accept those who in our estimation should be punished instead of promoted. Most of us would be mortified. We would have a propensity, I think, to take Jesus aside and say, you know, please, Lord, I I think we can do better than this. And who knows, maybe some of the disciples did that and it just didn't get recorded. But you know, beloved, in a situation like that, the right response would be for you and I to drop to our knees and thank God that he called us out of our own wickedness. You know, it's too easy for us at times to forget that we're sinners too, isn't it? And yet we're justified, but in ourselves we're still weak, we're still vulnerable. James 3.2 states, for we all stumble in many ways. And here's the question we need to ask ourselves. Do you think that when God called us that our sin was any less repulsive to God than Matthew's was? I think not. You know, it's easy for us to forget where we came from. And if we're not careful, we can become very overly pious and we can become very overly prideful. We can convince ourselves that being in the faith is kind of like being in this elite club. You know, it's like the guy says, "Uh, please get up, that's my seat, that's my chair in church. I sit there every week and why don't you go sit over there? And we almost treat it like we're in a country club, even to the point that we want nothing to do with those who are on, quote, the outside. We can become ungrateful. We can become self-righteous because we easily forget the radical work that God had to do on our own hearts to bring us to saving faith. And you know what? We were as depraved and lost as Matthew. Amen? Amen. And we can lose sight of our continuing need to depend upon God. And instead of having thankful hearts, we can become a group of self-righteous people with no room for sympathy for sinners or others. You know, we should take great joy in the fact that Jesus called Matthew to follow him. 
And you know, when we're aware of how sinful we were before salvation, it should produce in us a love and compassion toward those who are yet lost and dead in their trespasses in sin. And I love what Pastor Joe said this morning. He said, you know, if you feel yourself getting self-righteous, just go look in the mirror and say, what did it take to save that guy or that girl? That's usually a good, a good cure. So we see that God reached down and he called a man most hated by men to show that a depraved human instrument in the hands of God is much more valuable than the most loved and respected man who is lost. And I thank God that he is not a respecter of persons. Amen? So be thankful that God called you. Don't ever lose that spirit, that sense of gratitude that you have. And remember that all of us were once Matthews. Each one of us in our own way were Matthews before the Lord called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So we first see we should be thankful that God called you. Secondly, Matthew teaches us that we should be thankful for what God makes you. We should be thankful for what God makes you. We find that in verses 13 and 14. Again, he went out by the seashore, and all the people were coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. Now, I'm sure that when Jesus stared intently at Matthew and he uttered the words, follow me, Matthew had no idea what was in store for him. At this point, Matthew was under deep conviction for his sin. He saw for the first time his deep spiritual need. And that was enough, beloved, for him to stand up in the faith and leave everything behind and forever commit himself to the Lord Jesus Christ. But I have no doubt that at that point in his life, he had no idea what follow me meant. But he was willing to put his life completely in the hands of Jesus. And you know, to appreciate the depth of Matthew's thankfulness at his conversion, I think there are some things that we could keep in mind. When Matthew followed Jesus, he turned his back on everything that he was and everything that he possessed. And here is what is unique about the call of Matthew, that he knew, Matthew knew that once he forsook his post as a tax collector, he could never return to it. He could never go back. Matthew gave up, really, I think, more than any of the disciples. If you think about Peter or Andrew or James or John, they could go back to fish for a while. They could go back to their boats. There's no way Matthew's going back to be a tax collector. Once he left that booth, that was the end of it. Matthew burned his bridges completely. He lost a comfortable job. He lost a sizable income. He lost world security. And it was once said that until a man is nothing, God can make nothing of him. So when Jesus said, follow me, the Lord knew that he would turn Matthew into a man who he would never have imagined. And instead of being a rip-off artist, Matthew, as his name implied, became a gift to God's people. And not only was he a true disciple, but he was one of the chosen 12 apostles. So Christ saw in this disfigured life of Levi, the tax collector, a Matthew who would take his pen from the tax table and write one of the greatest gospel records in the Bible. Amen. What an amazing God we have. There he would declare the kingship of Christ as an eternal record in the eternal word of God. Matthew became a writer, an evangelist, a harvester of souls, 
And I'm sure that Matthew never dreamed that decades later, John would pen Revelation 21.14, where he recorded that when the new city of Jerusalem was built, one of the foundation stones of that eternal city would be inscribed with Matthew. His name recorded forever. A memorial to the true and living God is a testament to his love and faithfulness. And you know, beloved, God has done the same for us. You know, when we decided to follow him, we really became heirs to a spiritual fortune. Do you realize that? We are the richest people on the face of the earth. In God's call of every believer, he saw through our sin. He sees through our deformity. He sees us as a treasure to be tapped into with unlimited spiritual potential. And our lives now are the result of his workmanship. And when we come to Christ, we know it's going to cost us something, isn't it? I love Steve Lawson's little book. If you haven't read it, it's a little book that's entitled, It Will Cost You Everything. And it does cost us. You know, we may lose a job. We may lose some income. We may lose some friends. We may lose some earthly security. But our desire to follow him into kingdom work will always produce more than what we lose. Because we gain everything. Remember what Paul tells us in Ephesians 3.20, that God is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all we ask or think according to the power that works within us. And you know, I've said this many times, I think of my own life when I came to Saving Faith at 16 and God began to take me in a new direction and I never dreamed that I would wind up where I wound up in the years to come. And I remember going to our first church and being very insecure about everything and I had no real security and I stepped well out of my comfort zone and then I was hit with a flood, a fire, a tornado. I had lightning blow me out of my chair and I was labeled the pastor of disaster. How about that for a way to start ministry? But you know what? As I, as I look back at all this, it was an incredible blessing and God has allowed us to experience things and do things that I never dreamed. And you know what? I bet if we went around the room tonight and we had an opportunity to talk to each one, you'd have some fantastic testimonies for what God has done in your life. How many of you never thought you would be where you are since you came to Christ? Anybody? Amen. I agree. I mean, I, I love to hear testimonies of how God works in the lives of his, of his people and brings them to places they never thought they would go. So when God calls us to follow him, he doesn't ask us to think about what we might have to give up or how our lives might change. God says, listen, trust me and be thankful for what I can make you, a new creature in Christ. And listen, had Matthew not followed Jesus, he probably would have stayed a tax collector and, and died carrying out a disreputable trade. But because he answered the call, he became a man who gave to men the very record of the Word of God. So be thankful for what God can make you. And as you serve Him, remember that everything you do is of eternal value. I think Paul said it best in Philippians 3.7 when he said, Whatever things were counted gain to me, those things I have counted loss for the sake of Christ. And I will tell you, beloved, that God never goes back on the man who stakes his all on the Lord Jesus Christ. So we see we should be thankful that God called you, be thankful for what God makes you. Third, through Matthew, we learn to be thankful for how God enlightens you. And for that, we look at verses 15 and 16. Be thankful for how God enlightens you. 
And it happened that when he was reclining at the table in his house, and many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many of them, and they followed him. And when the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and the tax collectors, they said to his disciples, Why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? One of the things I love about Matthew is he did not waste any time pressing himself into service. And I find this to be so endearing. Now in Luke's gospel, we're told that Matthew gave a great reception for Jesus at his house. He wanted to honor Christ. And and it would be natural, wouldn't it, to be celebrating and rejoicing? I mean, when you came to the Lord, you wanted everybody to know, amen, right? You wanted to tell people. You, You felt that weight lifted of sin, and you felt for the first time that, that joy of knowing that you have a Savior who has brought you out of your condemnation. And so we see that Matthew wanted to celebrate and rejoice. Matthew's conversion changed his life. He had been enlightened by the truth of the gospel. He saw his sinfulness. He saw his need to repent, and he saw his need to follow Christ. And I don't think there's anything greater as far as occasions go for rejoicing than being converted. J.C. Ryle, in his book, Expository Thoughts on the Gospels, rightly described the joy of conversion, and this is what he said. He said, It is far more important even than being married, or coming of age, or being made a nobleman, or receiving great fortune. It is the birth of an immortal soul. It is the rescue of a sinner from hell. It is the passage from death to life. It is being made a king and a priest forever. It is being provided for both in time and eternity. It is adoption into the nobles and riches of all families, the family of God. What a great truth. And I think coming to Christ is a great reason to party. Amen? But Matthew also threw the party to share Christ with his friends. And of course, his friends were like himself. There were tax gatherers, there were sinners, there were social and religious outcasts there. And we're told in other gospel accounts that this was a very large gathering. And I have no doubt that this gathering probably included robbers and drunkards and prostitutes. And their reclining in their midst was our Messiah the sinless Son of God. And I think that Luke's gospel best catches the flavor of this moment. Because in Luke 5.29, we read that there was a great crowd of tax gatherers and other people who, listen to this, were reclining at the table with them. Now this reclining, if you understand anything about how in ancient Jewish times they had dinner would be like a Seder dinner. It would be very intimate. It would be very personal. It would be very focused. So it wasn't like they came to a dinner with Jesus and Jesus was a hundred feet behind them and they were all sitting at tables down there and there was this big, you know, chasm between them. He was right with them, sitting around in an intimate setting with all of these people. And what strikes me as being so fascinating, is that these people felt comfortable with him. They felt comfortable with him. They sat there. They listened to him. Unlike the Pharisees who loathed the thought of sitting with such a gathering. Now, we're not told what this group of tax gatherers and sinners thought of Jesus during the meal, but we know that they ate with him. We know that they listened to him. We know that Matthew desperately wanted his friends to meet Jesus, that Matthew wanted them to hear the words that had convicted him. 
And he hoped that they too would be moved, that they too might follow Jesus. And I would not be surprised to see some of them in heaven someday, would you? Matthew was enlightened because he saw the need for God's forgiveness. His thankfulness for how God had met his own need compelled him to bring others to the Master's feet. And isn't that normal? Isn't, shouldn't that be normal for us? You know, we can look at the, at the unsaved with contempt or we can look at the unsaved with compassion and say that they need Christ. They need to be enlightened. They need to see their need for a Savior. And Matthew was already reflecting Christ's likeness. He was conscious of his own sin. He was conscious of the sins of his friends. He knew they had a great need for Christ. Jesus knew that too. And that's why Jesus called Matthew. And why he now sat with men and women who were just like Matthew. Because he was driven, as Luke 19.10 says, to seek and to save that which was lost. On the other hand, the scribes and the Pharisees were utterly disgusted. They were offended that Jesus would have anything to do with people like that. They were labeled as sinners, those who had no respect for the Mosaic law or the rabbinical traditions. And they were outraged that Jesus, who claimed to hold a standard of righteousness even higher than their own, would sit down with such an openly sinful group. These scribes, although they were in attendance, carefully avoided ritual impurity. And they had no contact with anyone who didn't keep their tradition And tragically, these scribes and Pharisees didn't think they needed God's forgiveness, and they were certain that these tax gatherers and these sinners didn't deserve God's forgiveness. So their ministry here was not to help, but rather to judge. It didn't provide hope, it only provided condemnation. They hated Jesus because he was a man who condemned their self-righteousness, and then he offered forgiveness to sinners. And even though they claimed to be spiritually enlightened, these scribes and Pharisees were spiritually blind. So, beloved, when we came to Christ, how grateful, how thankful should we be that that the Holy Spirit removed our spiritual blindness. For the first time, we were able to see ourselves for who we are. We were able to see others for who they are. And we were enlightened. And as we saw our own sinfulness, we saw clearly our need to repent of our sins, to be washed by the blood of Christ. And for the first time, we saw ourselves for how we really were. And I don't know about you, but the more I learn about Scripture, the more acutely I see my own sin. Does anybody else have that problem? The more you learn of God's Word and the more you study it, the more you realize how holy He is and how not holy we are. And how thankful we should be that He called us in spite of ourselves. We could see our own sinfulness. We could see our own self-righteousness. We could see that as sinful men, listen, we have nothing to boast about. That in ourselves, listen, we are no different than any man. I love that Paul said, I am what I am by the grace of God. That's it. And we could all say that. Listen, I don't care if a man is rich or poor, whether he's a king, a pauper, intellectual, illiterate, Listen, we all share the same gene pool. We all started in Adam. Amen? So we all need the Lord Jesus Christ. Be thankful that in salvation God enlightened you. You know, that's a heavy truth when we consider it against 2 Corinthians 4.4 where we're told that Satan blinds the eyes of the unsaved. Things that you see so clearly, the elemental truths of the gospel, they don't get it. 
They don't see it. And we wouldn't see it either if God didn't remove the blinders, right? You saw your need for Christ. You were able to respond to the gospel. And now you're able to look at others with compassion. And that's something that we should never forget. You know, as believers, we can see this account in Matthew. And in our minds, it's easy to say this. Well, I would never espouse the views of the Pharisees and the the scribes. Nevertheless, isn't it true that we often live by those views? We come to Christ, and in our desire to be godly, we seek out people kind of like us, right? We can tend to isolate ourselves. We can tend to insulate ourselves from unbelievers. And we have to be careful about this. We can arrange our lives so that we're with non-believers as little as possible. We attend Bible studies that are 100% Christian. We attend Sunday school that's 100% Christian. Prayer meetings that are 100% Christian. We play tennis with Christians. We eat dinner with Christians. We have Christian doctors and dentists and plumbers and veterinarians. Even our dogs are Christian. (laughs) Right? And we get into this isolated state, don't we? And if we're not careful, here's the problem. We stop seeing the unsaved. We don't see them anymore. We can become so polarized, we can become so biased in the faith that we pass by hundreds of people without seeing their need for Christ. We can lose compassion. We can lose opportunities to influence people for Christ. So like Matthew, we need to reach out to people. And all of us can do better in that area. Every one of us probably misses the mark in that area to some extent. But we can be active in the world without being in the world. Amen, right? God left us in the world. We're not to be of the world, but we're in the world. And we can be active. So we need to reach out to people at work. We need to reach out to our neighbors. Minister to those who are hurting. Go to dinner with the unsaved. Volunteer in community events. I can guarantee you in this day and age, you will not get leprosy from the unsaved. So we need to reach out. I'm always so thrilled when someone will say to me, hey, I want to introduce you to my neighbor. I brought my neighbor to church or whatever. Those are wonderful things. Share the gospel with them. Be thankful for how God enlightened you and seek then to help others be enlightened also with such a great salvation that you yourself obtained. And that gives you more love and compassion for the lost. You know, the more you witness to the unsaved, the more you feel a burden to do more. But some of us, I think, can become so insulated, we can become so comfortable, we can become so isolated that we, we don't think about our need to reach out. So be thankful that God called you. Be thankful for what God makes you. Be thankful for how God enlightens you. And fourthly, from Matthew, we learn to be thankful that God has met your greatest need. And we find that in verse 17. God has met your greatest need. And hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. When the scribes and the Pharisees grumbled to the disciples as to why Jesus would recline and eat with such degenerates, obviously Jesus overheard them. And it must have been very embarrassing for them, I would think, when Jesus himself answered instead. And in Matthew's gospel, he responds by telling them, go and learn. Do you realize what a stinging rebuke that was? Jesus didn't say that in a nice way. Well, just go and learn. It was go and learn. That was a rebuke. 
And he was telling them by quoting Hosea 6.6 6, that I desire compassion and not a sacrifice. So he was kind of nailing them to the wall with their own scripture. You see, the phrase go and learn was a rebuke to those who didn't know what they should have known. So Jesus basically was saying through this rhetorical question or this comment, he was saying, go and learn. In other words, you think you know so much. You think you know the law. You think that you're so theologically astute. You don't even know the basics. Go back and learn. Know what you should know already. So he was telling them to look at God's word and calling them to be merciful and forgiving, not judgmental and condemning. The scribes, the Pharisees were spiritually sick. They couldn't see their greatest need. They couldn't see that they were terminally ill with sin. And here before them was the great physician, the only one in the universe who could cure their greatest need. But I think the point of Jesus' stinging rebuke is this. The one person for whom Jesus can do nothing is the person that thinks he is so good he doesn't need anything done for him. And the one person for whom Jesus can do everything is the person who is a sinner and knows it and who longs in his heart for the cure. Beloved, let me say this. Sin is the most dangerous sickness there is. And I would rather succumb to the ravages of cancer or a heart attack or a stroke than to die quietly in my sin. In dying for our sins, Jesus took away the greatest sickness we would ever have, and that is our sin. He, who knew no sin, became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. So be thankful that in Christ, God has met your greatest need. He has brought you to saving faith. And realize, too, that our salvation in Christ is not based on our goodness or badness. It's not based on our merit. It's not based on our standing or riches. But it's based on our need. The need for a Savior to wash away our sins. So if you're here as a believer tonight in Jesus Christ, you have every reason to be thankful to God for who you are. Be thankful that He called you. Be thankful for what He makes of you. Be thankful for how He enlightens you. And be thankful that God met your greatest need. And that should translate into a life of thanks living, shouldn't it? We should be thankful every single day that we have the opportunity to serve the Lord. And if you are here tonight and you have never put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, realize that you are still condemned in your sins. And that, like Matthew, God can call to follow me. But do you realize that you are a sinner? Do you realize that your sin condemns you to eternal separation from God? And do you realize that there is nothing in and of yourself that you can do to change your status before God? You are guilty as charged. And the only hope that God gives us, the greatest hope God gives us, is the fact that He sent His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the sinless Lamb of God, to die in our place on the cross and shed His blood to atone for our sins. So that on the cross, a great transaction took place. That while our sins were being credited to the Lord Jesus Christ, His righteousness was being accredited to us. The great transaction. So that we are justified through the shed blood of Christ and we are saved through His atoning work. And I would pray for anyone here who has not put faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ to not put that off. It's the most important thing you will ever do this side of eternity.
He is the only hope. And there is nowhere else to look except to Him. There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name given among men under heaven by which we might be saved. There is no other way. It is only through Him. And how thankful we can be that by His workmanship, we all as believers have become instruments of great spiritual worth. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Well, Lord, we are thankful that you have taken us, Lord, sinners of really no value, of nothing that would merit you to look at us as those who stand out in any way. Lord, we understand rather that you demonstrated your love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And Lord, I I pray that as we think of this account of Matthew, Lord, that you would take away out of our hearts any pharisaical attitudes we have, Lord. We so easily fall into self-righteousness, into our own pious attitudes, and Lord, we realize quickly as we let Scripture come to bear upon our own hearts that we are saved only by your mercy and that, Lord, our sins were just as damning as any sin of any man. And so, Lord, we thank you that there is great humility that comes to a soul of a genuine believer. And Lord, we pray that for all of our sins and shortcomings that we would repent, that we would desire to do better. And Lord, thank you for what you have done for us in spite of ourselves. And Lord, we pray that you will continually allow us to not forget those great atoning work that you've done through your Son and all that you have accomplished through us. And Lord, that we would wake up every day with hearts full of gratitude of just so great a salvation that has been given to us. And Lord, I pray that we would be sensitive and instruments in your hands to, again, proclaim this gospel to others, that we would have the heart of Matthew, that we would see our need to share this good news with others. And Lord, not to be silent, but rather to be part of your kingdom work in harvesting souls. And we pray, Lord, that you would do a mighty work through your spirit in bringing many more to yourself. And so we thank you for that. We just ask your blessing tonight on this church and upon each one. And Lord, may we go in your peace and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.